Again, our text today is found in Mark chapter 8. You may already be there. Um, We continue in our study of the Gospel of Mark. And as we've gone along, um, and we've been doing it in big chunks, you may have noticed, there's a theme that is now becoming quite obvious. That when we look at the ministry of Jesus as portrayed in the Gospel of Mark, we find ourselves thinking like the disciples, who, by the way, in their reactions, are not that different from his opponents. The disciples failed to recognize the unique character of Jesus, who he was. They failed to recognize the nature of the kingdom of God. And they failed to see Jesus within the context of the Old Testament. Their conclusion is much like our own. Yeah, I wouldn't do it that way. I wouldn't do it that way. So last week we look at the Syrophoenician woman whose daughter was possessed. And Jesus like, you know, I came for the children. Okay. And it's not right for me to give to dogs what belong to the children. Um, that is, she asked, she begged, and he sort of pushed her back, pushed her away. His language in today's culture would be perceived as racist even hate speech. Yeah, and we wouldn't do that. And then we saw him healing the deaf man and the man who had a speech impediment of some type. Speech, he was speech impaired. And Jesus stuck his fingers in the man's ear, and then he spit on his fingers and touched the man's tongue. And we're like, yeah, that, why don't you just say something? You know, why don't you just lay your hands on him? Because that's what the people begged. They brought this man to Jesus and said, please lay your hands on him. And instead, Jesus um, puts his fingers in his ear and spits on his fingers and puts it on his tongue. And then the feeding of the 4,000. This is the second miraculous feeding of a large crowd. Um, And it's different than the first time because there are seven loaves and Jesus gives thanks. He prays. He breaks it up, gives it to the disciples. They distribute it. And then somehow they bring fish to him. So then again, he prays, breaks it up, gives it to the disciples who distribute it to the people. It just doesn't seem very efficient. I mean, praying twice, why not just like bless all the food that may show up today? Um, It doesn't seem particularly efficient to have the disciples distribute food among the crowd twice. Then there were those who asked for a sign. And Jesus had already done a lot of miraculous signs. So why not do something again when people ask for it? I mean, wouldn't that in fact convince them of who he was? Like the disciples, I think we would say, I have a better vision of what the kingdom should look like and God, how God should work in the world today. And we would be wrong. Like the disciples, we have hardened hearts. We are contaminated by yeast. That is, our views of the kingdom are wrong. Jesus had warned his disciples, beware of the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. The yeast of the Pharisees was they imagined the kingdom of God as being something that would be for the benefit of the Jews, and particularly for them because they were the ones who kept the law with great great strictness. So for them, it isn't even... It's not even not for the whole world. It's not even for all the Jewish people. 
but just for those who are doing things in a particular way. The yeast of the Pharisee of the Herodians was in fact secularism. They wanted their family, the family of the Herodians, to stay on the throne. And neither of these visions were true or came near the mark. We may be guilty of doing the same thing, and that is to say, yeah, we know what God should do in the world today. Today we come back to Mark, chapter 8, beginning at verse 22, and we will find this theme being repeated again and again. So I read to you earlier, beginning at verse 22, they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought a blind man and begged Jesus to touch him. He took the blind man by the hand and led him outside the village. When he had spit on the man's eyes and put his hands on him, Jesus asked, do you see anything? He looked up and said, I see people, they look like trees walking around. Once more, Jesus put his hands on the man's eyes, then his eyes were opened, his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. Jesus sent him home saying, don't go into the village. Things to consider. As it was in the case we saw last week of the man who was deaf and was speech impeded, that is, he had some type of speech impediment. Others bring him to Jesus and they beg Jesus to touch him. As much as to say, yeah, we've watched you and we know what you do, so this is what you should do. Touch him and he will be healed. We've seen you do that with other people, so that's what you must do here. This is what you should do. Um, By the way, this is the third case we've seen of someone begging Jesus. The first was a Syrophoenician woman begging for her demon-possessed daughter, and then the man who was deaf and had a speech impediment, and now a man who is blind. This is the first, and I think it may be in the gospel, the only two-stage healing. Um, Up to this point, Jesus speaks or he touches someone and they are healed. Or the woman who had the issue of bleeding for 12 years, she touched his cloak and she was instantly healed. Here we have something that is in two stages. Thirdly, we may assume that this man was not born blind because after the first stage, when Jesus had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he said, can you see? He says, well, I see people, but they look like trees walking around. Well, I would assume that this man at some point in his life did have sight. He did have vision. He knew knew what trees look like. He's not like the man in John 9 who was born blind. Fourthly, if you look at Jesus' healing in the Gospels, particularly the healing of the blind, I don't think for the other types of healings, but the healings of the blind, Jesus never does the same thing twice. He doesn't do it the same way twice. So what does Jesus do here? Let's let's not miss the details here because they're important. First of all, he took the man by the hand. Other people had brought this man to Jesus so they could be the guide, so Jesus could say, okay, follow me. But it is Jesus, in fact, who takes his hand. He gives his personal attention to this man. And then he takes him outside the village. As to why Jesus did this, there's a number of possibilities. Um, Jesus wanted to take the man away from the crowd. Maybe he wanted the man to be more at ease and to concentrate on the one who would give him sight. But if you remember what we read today before communion, you know, wherever the sufferer is, 
God is there. And in the midst of the crowd, people might have lost sight of that. The blind man may have lost sight of this. Jesus takes him apart and says, I am with you. Jesus takes him by the hand, and it's just the two of them. So he spat on the man's eyes. And it may be that it wasn't directly that he spat on his hands and then touched the man's eyes. Um, Jesus asked him, do you see anything? And he said, yeah, I see people. They look like trees walking around. So once again, he puts his hands on the man. So he'd done it previously, and now he does it again. And the man can see. His eyesight is fully restored. Jesus sends him home saying, don't go into the village. You know, basically, go home, don't tell anyone. Why was this done in two stages? This is, as I said, the only occurrence in the Gospels of a two-stage healing. We are not told. We are not told. But I think it is safe to assume that we wouldn't do it that way. We wouldn't do it that way. If we had the ability to heal someone, we would want it to be immediate. We would want it to be a demonstration of power. Because at this point, if it's in two stages, like what is Jesus, you know, is the power sort of, the power level going down? Uh, we simply wouldn't do it that way. And why does Jesus tell him not to go in the village? Again, we are not told. But again, I think it's safe to say we wouldn't do it that way. We would say, go into the village and tell people what I have done for you. Now we come to a very powerful passage, verses 27, 28, and 29. Jesus and his disciples went to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, who do people say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others one of the prophets. But what about you? He asked, who do you say I am? Peter answered, you are the Christ. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. So you can imagine the scene. Jesus is walking along with his disciples, and he asks them, you know, what's the common consensus? What's the public opinion about who I am? And they give him various opinions. One is that he's John the Baptist. That's what Herod thought, because Herod had cut off uh, John's head, and then suddenly there's a guy doing miraculous things, and he thought, oh, this is John come back to life with, like, superpower. Others said it was Elijah, then one of the prophets, Lest we somehow think that we are better than these people, um, these opinions are not necessarily, they're not correct, okay? But consider the people that they think he is. John the Baptist, Elijah, one of the prophets. These are fearless men of God who spoke out against evil and injustice, who called God's people to come back to him, to repent and to be restored in relationship. They are those who brought hope to God's suffering of people. So it isn't like, oh, you, you poor Jews, you poor ignorant people. Why do you say he's like John the Baptist? It's not a bad comparison. Why do you say he's Elijah? Well, that's not bad either. But what it does is it opens the door for Jesus to ask the important question to his disciples. Who do you say that I am? They are his disciples. They've been with him. We don't know how long at this point, but they've been going around with him. And they've gotten so much wrong. They've gotten so much wrong. And so he wants to know, what do you think? 
Have you been swayed by public opinion? Do you think, in fact, that I'm Elijah or one of the prophets? Peter, speaking for the group, says, you are the Christ. As wonderful as this confession might be, consider he's not saying you are the Son of God. You're the second member of the Trinity. Mark, who's writing years later, believes that Jesus, in fact, is divine. And he will show us why as the book goes along. But at this moment in the story, the confession is something else. It is politically dangerous and it is theologically risky because basically Peter is saying, you are the king of Israel. You're the anointed one, the Messiah. The disciples weren't expecting God to come in the flesh. They weren't expecting a divine redeemer. They wanted a king. They wanted someone who would bring peace, who would drive out the Roman occupiers. And they thought they had found one. They thought it was Jesus. You are the Christ. You are the Messiah. You are the anointed one, the hope of Israel. And again, I would refer you to Luke chapter 24. Uh, on the day of that first Easter, you have the two disciples walking along and Jesus comes along with them. He's like, why, why are you guys not happy? And you're like, well, are you a stranger? Don't you know what happened? Uh, the person we thought was the hope of Israel has been put to death. They didn't say the one we knew to be the son of God, but the one we hoped was, the, the one we thought was the hope of Israel. Now we come to verses 31, 32, and 33. And this is the hinge passage in the Gospel of Mark. Everything changes after these verses. Everything is led up to this, and now from this point on, it will be about the passion of Jesus. Look, if you would, at verse 31. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. As I said, this is a turning point that he began to teach them. Up to this point, he hadn't mentioned his coming death. Uh, One, uh, a newer translation of this has, Jesus now began to teach them something new. Up to this point, he hasn't talked about this. And now he begins to tell them that in fact, he will suffer, he will be rejected by the religious authorities, he will be killed, but then he will be resurrected. If you read these three verses, something becomes very apparent. That is, it was necessary, it would be necessary for the Messiah to suffer these things. He must suffer many things and be rejected. He must be killed. Okay. But secondly, it was quite revealing because it showed that those who were the religious authorities, the people in power, in fact, would reject him and put him to death. Yeah, up to this point, um, there's been pushback. So when Jesus told the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, they're like, yeah, that, that sounds an awful lot like blasphemy. When he healed on the Sabbath, they weren't happy. 
when they ask why his disciples did not fast and why they didn't do the ceremonial cleansing before they ate. Um, we did see earlier where the Pharisees and Herodians began to talk together how they might destroy him. But now it's out in the open. Jesus says to his disciples that the religious authorities, in fact, will put him to death. And then you'll notice, I've said that everything Jesus said was in parable, but here is something where he speaks plainly. I mean, there's no, oh, is this a metaphorical? Are you trying to say that you know, things are not going to work out really well? No, he speaks plainly and tells them, in fact, that these things must happen. Well, you know what? The disciples rejected this. And Peter, who had just said, you are the Christ, now turns around and rebukes him. He takes him aside and he rebukes him. I think Peter's speaking for the, the whole group. It's not just Peter speaking for the whole group. And he's like, that is not how the story goes. Okay? That's not the way things are going to happen. And Jesus says, you know what? What you are saying is satanic. It's demonic. It's diabolical. It is wrong. He says, you do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. In the language of previous passages, Peter, you are speaking with a hardened heart. You have been contaminated by yeast. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. Like the Pharisees and their followers and the Herodians, the narrative of the Messiah did not involve any death. Okay, the Messiah has come. He, well, if there's going to be death, it's the Romans who are going to die. Okay, not the Messiah. We are told in Hebrews 9, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness. The writer of the book of Hebrews didn't make this up. This comes from Leviticus chapter 17. It is the blood that makes atonement for one's life. The Pharisees didn't see it. The Sadducees didn't see it. The Herodians didn't. But the disciples didn't see it, that Jesus had to die. He was the atoning sacrifice that we might have forgiveness of sins. So again, they didn't see him in the context of the Old Testament. They had their own vision, their own construct. This is what the Messiah is going to be like, and this is what he's going to do. And for the disciples, this kind of extra cool that he can heal and uh, you know, exercise demons and even raise the dead, uh, but die? Yeah, that's, that's not in the program. Well, if what Jesus just said to Peter and the disciples was difficult, difficult to get their minds around, what follows may even be more difficult. And it begins by widening the audience. Now he's not simply talking to his disciples, but to the crowd along with them. Look, if you would, at verse 34. Then he called the crowd to him, along with his disciples, and said, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world, yet forfeit his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his Father's glory with his holy angels. 
in chapter 9, verse 1. And he said to them, I tell you the truth, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God come with power. This is where it gets hard. The cost of following Jesus, if anyone would come after me, that is, follow me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. If anyone desires to be a follower of Jesus, that is, to come up behind him, to follow in his footsteps, three things, deny oneself, take up the cross, and follow. But what does this mean? We may have heard these words many times in the past, but what do they mean? To deny oneself may be misunderstood, and I think has uh, quite a bit. It doesn't mean, and this is my opinion, that anything you like or anything you want, anything that's you, you have to say no. Okay, Anything that I want to do, no. I must deny myself. I think what it means, and as Mark writes his gospel, I think it becomes clear, that one must give up his or her story or narrative. Oh, this is how I know my story is going to go out. This is how I know my story is going to unfold. This is how I know God is going to work in my life. This is the way God must work in the world. And the reality is you need to get rid of that. You need to say, in essence, I'm not sure. I don't know what the story is, but God does. And I will give up my story. I will deny my story to follow that which God has in mind for me. And then he says we have to take up one's cross. We're so familiar with these words that we may lose the sense of shock that they must have brought. The cross was the form of execution by the hated Romans, the occupiers of that place. And suddenly Jesus is using the metaphor of You know that thing where the Romans totally humiliate you, they hang you on a cross naked and you suffer for two or three or four days before you die? Yeah, that's what you need to do. You need to take up your cross. It was the Roman habit that if you were going to be crucified, you had to carry your cross to the place of execution. Unwillingly, obviously. Here Jesus says that you must willingly, in fact, and decisively accept that which it means to be a follower of Jesus. On the one hand, it means giving up your conviction that God must, ask, must act in a particular way. This may be the harder of the two. But on the other hand, it means that we should be willing to suffer for the sake of Jesus. I think the second, we've not experienced that. I don't think it's that big of a thing for us. But the idea that I don't get to write the story of my life, that God is the one, in fact, who does that, I think that's really hard. And then Jesus says, you follow me. Now, some warnings here that we we should consider. First of all, Jesus isn't talking about the three steps of being a disciple. First, you deny yourself, then you take up your cross, and then you follow me. Okay? Or some might imagine, well, for a while you deny yourself, okay? And then for a while you take up your cross, and then for a while you follow me. Um, This is, in fact, something that we are to do every day of our life. It begins with our conversion, and it continues with our sanctification. 
Secondly, and perhaps this is the more important of the two warnings, we should not imagine that we can do this in our own strength. So that after the sermon is finished and you go home, you're like, okay, I'm going to do what Damon said, what Jesus said in Mark, that in fact I'm going to deny myself, take up my cross, and I'm going to follow him. Um, When we came to faith in Jesus, we were called, we were told to repent and to turn to him. But we could not do this on our own. It required the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And in our walk with Jesus, our sanctification, it requires as well the work of the Spirit. We should not imagine that if I go and live in a cave somewhere, if I'm a hermit, if I join a monastery or some type of community, that I in fact can do these things on my own. And you cannot. Uh, as Jesus continues, there are actually four verses here, and let me see if I can find it here. Verse 35, 36, 37, and 38, all of them begin with the word for. The NIV has failed us here because it doesn't do that. Um, that is beginning with what Jesus said earlier. Okay, now these are the implications. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. As difficult as this may sound, I would suggest a simpler solution than the one we might imagine. The question must, uh, we must ask is this, who is the Lord of my life? What decides what my story is to be? Who determines the narrative of my life? If, it, if you think it's me, then you lose. Okay. If you hold on to it, you lose. If, on the other hand, you give your life to the Lord for the good news, then you, in fact, will save it, the purpose for which it was intended. As we have seen, creation is pointed to the new creation. And in spite of the fall, there is redemption. This is the good news. And so instead of saying... I will be the captain of my fate, the master of my destiny. When you do that, you will lose. On the other hand, if you give your life and allow God to write his purposes in your life, then you will gain it. And now we have an example in verses 36 and 37. Again, the word for should be there. For what good is it for a man to gain the whole world, yet forfeit his soul? If you imagine, (coughs) excuse me, that you can determine your story, and that story involves gaining the whole world, or a fraction thereof, um, you, in fact, will lose. You will forfeit your soul. And then verse 37, for what can a man give in exchange for his soul? Nothing. There is no story, there is no narrative that, in fact, will redeem your life. People say, yes. Or more importantly, that God will say, Yes, I will accept you. There is nothing you can do to give an exchange for your soul. Then in verse number 38, there is the promise. For if anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. 
We need to understand what's being said here. When Jesus says to be ashamed of him, means that you are proud not to be associated with him. That is to say, you don't simply say, well, I'm not with this guy. Okay, I'm not with Jesus. But you are proud and you say, I'm not with Jesus. I want nothing to do with him. You are ashamed of him. In Hebrews 2, we read, both the one who makes men holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers. That is to say, Jesus is not too proud to say, these people, they are my people, they're my brothers and sisters. One could easily imagine why Jesus, in fact, would be ashamed of us. We are sinners. He has saved us by his death, his sacrifice, yet we still sin. But Jesus is not ashamed of us. But if we are ashamed of him, if we are too proud to be affiliated with him, then in fact he will be ashamed to call us his brothers. And then chapter 9, verse 1, we have sort of an additional promise that's put on there. He said to them, I tell you the truth, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God come with power. Jesus had spoken to his disciples about his passion and his resurrection. Now he tells the people listening that some of them will still be alive when they see the kingdom of God coming with power. And what does that mean? The resurrection. When they see Jesus having been raised from the dead, they will see the beginning of the new creation. You may remember last Easter we talked about the difference between resuscitation and resurrection. That there are in fact nine incidents in scripture where someone was raised from the dead. Three in the Old Testament, three in the Gospels, three after the death of Jesus. But all, in all of these cases, those people died again. They were resuscitated. They were not resurrected. Jesus was resurrected. He was given a new form of existence. He had a new body. He was transformed. It was a new creation. Jesus, in fact, would be raised from the dead, and many listening to him would be witnesses of that. Now that we're in chapter 9, we'll look at two things briefly. First is the transfiguration. This is found in verses 2 through 10. And for the first time, we are given an exact time reference. We're told earlier that um, after several days, Jesus did such and such. But here it is exact. After six days, Peter took Peter, James, and John with him and led them up a high mountain where they were all alone. There he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there before them, Elijah and Moses, who were talking with Jesus. Peter said, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. In parenthesis, verse number six, he did not know what to say. They were so frightened. Then a cloud appeared and enveloped them, and a voice from the cloud, came from the cloud, this is my son whom I love, listen to him. Suddenly, when they looked around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. Jesus was coming down, as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. They kept the matter to themselves, discussing what rising from the dead 
meant. This happens six days after Peter says, you are the Christ, and then Jesus says, okay, I'm going to suffer, be rejected, and then be killed, and Peter says, that's not going to happen, and then Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. This is six days later, okay? There were three disciples with him, Peter, James, and John. The location is on a high mountain, which as we've seen is significant based on Old Testament examples. And particularly in given who appears with Jesus. Jesus is transfigured. And it's a word I think we're not that familiar with. And transformed might be a better word. Um, But what it means is explained in verse number three. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. I'm assuming that what he was wearing before the transfiguration, his clothes were not white. And suddenly they are transformed into this brightening, bright, shining, white material. And two Old Testament figures appear with him. They are talking with him. This is Moses and Elijah. And again, if you don't know the Old Testament, you may not know who Moses and Elijah are. You may not know not only who they are, but what they represent and why they were talking with Jesus. Moses represents the law. He went up on a high mountain, Mount Sinai, to receive the law. Elijah represents the prophets. And Elijah had that experience on Mount Carmel where he had this sort of contest with the priest of Baal to see which God could in fact bring fire down from heaven. Two Old Testament men, the law, the prophets. High mountain, and they're there talking with Jesus. Well, Peter and the other two are just freaked out. They don't know what to do. And so Peter, as seems to be the case, says the first thing that comes to his mind. There's no editing going on here in his mind. And he says, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Okay, that's, that's sort, of, sort of nice. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. It's worth noting, you know, there are no photographs, okay? There are no physical representations of Moses and Elijah. And how is it that Peter and the disciples knew, in fact, that this is Moses and Elijah? But he spoke hastily. He was frightened. And what he said was quite dangerous because what Peter is saying, in essence, is Jesus, Moses, Elijah, they're all equals. Great men, men of God, that God used in supernatural ways. So let's build three tabernacles. Let's build three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. No. Jesus is not like Moses and Elijah. And so it is at this point that a cloud envelops them and a voice comes from the cloud and in essence is saying, yeah, he's not like Moses and Elijah, okay? This is my son whom I love. Listen to him. Jesus is not just another lawgiver. He's not just another prophet. He is a lawgiver. He is a prophet. But Moses and Elijah are not his equal. He is the son of God. He is loved by the Father. This is my son whom I love. And then, listen to him. You need to get rid of all these imaginary visions you have. Oh, 
Jesus can do this and he can do that, so this is how it will work out and he'll be king and we'll be big shots in the kingdom of God. No. Listen to him. Listen to what he has to say. And what he has to say is, I'm going to suffer and I'm going to be killed. I'm going to be put to death. Jesus tells the three men, don't tell anyone what you have seen until the Son of Man has risen from the dead. Um, And they still didn't get it. They were discussing among themselves, what does this mean if he's risen from the dead? Okay, last passage is chapter 9, verses 11, 12, and 13. And they asked him, why do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? Jesus replied, to be sure Elijah does come first and restores all things. Why then is it written that the Son of Man must suffer and be rejected? But I tell you, Elijah has come, and they have done to him everything they wished, just as it is written about him. This is one of those passages that is found in Luke as well as in Matthew, but it is in Matthew that we really, this, it's, it's opened up to us. We could have wished that Mark would have told us more, but we have the Gospel of Matthew, and this is what Matthew says. Um, I tell you that Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him, but have done to him everything they wished, in the same way the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was talking to them about John the Baptist. That John the Baptist was, in fact, the return of Elijah. I mean, he's not a reincarnation. But he comes in the spirit of Elijah to call the people back to God. As I said at the beginning, there is a recurring theme throughout the passages we've looked at the last few weeks. And it is this. I would not do things that way. Jesus takes the blind man away from the crowd, where it's just the two of them. Why not do it in front of the crowd? I mean, why not heal this man so everybody can see it? And then he spits on his eyes for a partial healing. Yeah, I don't, I don't think I want to do that. That's not the way I would do it. Why not do a complete healing? Why is it a partial healing? You know, first the man's got some vision, but he just sees shadows. And so Jesus touches him again, and then he can see clearly. Why not do it one shot? Um, Yeah, I wouldn't do it that way. Then he tells his disciples that he is, in fact, going to suffer and be put to death. And Peter rebukes him in speaking for his fellow disciples, like, that's not going to happen, Jesus. That's not going to happen. That's not how the story goes. And how many times in our lives have things happened and we get really upset, perhaps confused, maybe lose heart? We're like, that's, that's not way this, the way the story is supposed to go. If I'm a child of God, this is how the story goes. And Jesus says, listen, if you want to follow me, take up your cross. You need to deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. We're like, you know, that's not the way to get disciples. To say, oh, if you're going to be my disciple, you're going to have to go down a really, really difficult road. 
you're going to have to give up the story of your life, the story you've imagined since you were a child. This is how my life's going to turn out. You have to give that up. And you have to take up your cross. Yet that's not the way you get people to follow you. I wouldn't do it that way. And then at the transfiguration, Peter says, let's, let's build three shelters here. We've got Jesus, we've got Moses, we've got Elijah. They failed to recognize who Jesus was. We need to recognize what the call of Jesus involves. To deny oneself means to give up the story we have of our own life. To give up the idea of how we think God must act in the world. To take up your cross means to voluntarily and decisively accept what it means to be a follower of Jesus. It means giving up your story, but on the other hand, it may mean suffering. It may mean persecution. It may mean shame. But we need to recognize, and I'll end with this, that we cannot walk this path on our own. We cannot do this on our own. If, in fact, you go home today and say, I'm going to do what Damon said. I'm going to deny myself. I'm going to take up my cross. I'm going to follow Jesus. Here I go. Um, You will fail. We fail anyway, but that's not the way it works. It requires that the Spirit of God work in our lives and opens our eyes, perhaps like this man, partially at first, then as we get, we grow in the faith, get to see more clearly, I'm not my own master. I'm not my own storyteller. I don't get to write out how my life's going to turn out. That's what God does. And if I'm going to be a follower of Jesus, I have to do that. And I can't do it on my own. Apart from the Spirit of God, I cannot do it. And so as we close in prayer today, let us pray that in fact God, by His Spirit, would work in our hearts, that we might in fact deny our own story, take up the cross, and follow Jesus. To do so by the power of the Spirit. Let's pray together. Our Father, we live in a time of self-help. So many videos on YouTube, so many books you can get on Amazon that tell us how we can fix our lives, how we can be the best person that we ought to be. And like it or not, we've sort of bought into that. We have dreams, we have ambitions. We have things we want to accomplish. In and of themselves, these are not wrong, but they cannot be that which drives us, that which we are convinced is the true story of our life. That in fact, if you have different plans for us, we should, by your grace, accept it. When our dreams don't come true, when we don't reach our goals, all is not lost, 
in fact, we may have gained if we look to you rather than to ourselves. While we admire what we see Jesus doing in the Gospels, we can't help but think time and time again, I just wouldn't do it that way. And in thinking that, we somehow imagine that we know better than Jesus, we know better than you. Our thinking is really messed up. We've been infected by yeast. Our hearts are hardened. Holy Spirit, soften our hearts. May we be pliable. May we be willing to listen to you and to trust, in fact, that you know what is best for us. That while we may wish to gain certain things, it's nothing in comparison with gaining Christ. One could say this all sounds good in theory. Sounds very spiritual. But it is, in fact, the way we're supposed to live our lives. If we would but listen to Jesus. Father, you said, this is my son whom I love. Listen to him. May we do that, and may we follow in his footsteps. I thank you for this time together that you've called us to worship you on this Mother's Day. Again, we are grateful for the women that you used to give us life. They taught us, they raised us, they loved us. They were instruments of your grace in our lives. And we give thanks. May your spirit and your grace go with us as we leave this place today. And as we walk through the world in the coming week, may we have a sense of your presence by your spirit. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.